We all have turning points in our lives. Each one of us can think about a very specific aspect of our lives where things turned a corner for us. History itself has a turning point. And the turning point of history is at the cross. The cross changes everything. The cross is where we see the most significant act that had ever yet taken place in all of humanity. And that's what we'll be focusing on today. For the cross can change everything. If we can share the message of the cross, the power of what the cross accomplishes because of who hung upon it and whose blood was shed at the cross, we can truly see people's lives turn a corner. Everything can change. We love to talk about turning points. It happens. Every time you go to a movie, you see the instigating event where everything turns. In Anytime you watch sports, the analysts love to talk about a key play that turned the corner, that changed the momentum, and everything was different from then on. That's exactly how it is in the history of humankind. The corner was turned at the cross. As we've been marching through this Easter series, we've been asking if you can see. Can you see what God is doing? We started in the garden where Jesus reversed The very first sin, when Adam himself declared, not your will, but my will be done, it started us on a very bad path. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reversed that by declaring to his Father, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus was on his way to the cross. We heard about how Jesus endured the kangaroo court trials before Herod and before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and suffered the indignity. Truth himself stood before Pilate and Pilate had the gall to ask, what is truth? We heard about how the crowd, who just earlier in the week shouted, Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna in the highest! And they were ready and excited to praise Jesus How fickle we are. Less than a week later, this same crowd exchanged Hosanna for crucify. Crucify! And we learned about how Barabbas was let go instead of Jesus and how Jesus suffered a terrible scourging, a terrible flogging. And we talked last week extensively about the physical elements of crucifixion, starting with the flogging and including the terrible mockery and the crown of thorns and the beating and the indignities that Jesus suffered, carrying His cross to the place of His execution. And we learned about the pain about Jesus being nailed to the cross and the blood that started to flow. Today, rather than focus on the physical aspects of the cross, we start to think about the spiritual significance of the cross. Now, we, like many people who were there and witnessed, may not be able to see the entire story for ourselves, but fear not, for the Holy Spirit has inspired the writers of the New Testament to interpret the events that transpired at the cross for us. And today, we will read the culmination of the story of the cross, found in Matthew 27. If you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and turn open to Matthew chapter 27. And we'll also immediately follow with John 19. You can follow along on the screens behind me. I'll read the text aloud in just a moment. But we will not stay merely at the text, for we will allow the Spirit of God 
to interpret for us the spiritual significance of what happened at the cross. We'll begin with Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 45. Would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of Scripture in awe of God's Word? The Word of the Lord, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now, let's leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. And now to John 19, verses 31 to 37. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that, what, that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so, we see the final breath of Jesus in his merely human incarnate form. Before he receives his resurrection body, and always remember, we know how the story continues. We know what happens, but Imagine not knowing, even though you'd been told. Imagine being so fearful at the crucifixion, hearing about it, seeing it from a distance, being so afraid that you run away, not knowing how it ends. Oh, this was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And yet God uses what looks like a terrible tragedy to turn everything to serve as the hinge of human history and to change our lives completely. Can you see that the will of God the Father is the sacrificial death of God the Son? Can you see that the love and the death of Christ 
compels heartfelt faith? This is what the cross is all about. Jesus has already been crucified. He hangs on the cross. And our text opens up in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Now, this darkness cannot be explained naturalistically, for this is no natural darkness at all. This is a supernatural, miraculous, divine hand blotting out the sun. An eclipse doesn't darken the sky for hours. A sandstorm doesn't cover the entire land in the area of Jerusalem. No, no, there is no explanation other than the miraculous. And what's very cool is that this is not merely attested to by the Bible and affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Roman and Jewish historians point to what they called hours-long eclipse that took place at the time Jesus died. Unable to explain it, they recorded it historically. This is an event that actually transpired. But why did it transpire? Darkness is emblematic of God's judgment. In the Old Testament book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 9, God declares that I will blot out the sun and I will turn the day into night and I will change laughing into mourning. And this is exactly what has happened here with Jesus at the cross. God darkens the sky for three hours to let everyone know of his displeasure with sin. With everything that's gone wrong, God allows darkness to cover the land for three days. In fact, it is, it is His will that it be so. The light of the world snuffed out by darkness at the Father's own hand. Can you see that the will of God the Father is the sacrificial death of God the Son? This is the first of the cosmic signs by which we can interpret the events of the cross. God's immense judgment and displeasure with sin are on full display. Darkness covered the land. Well, the very next verse declares that at about three in the afternoon, once the darkness started to fade and the natural light started to reemerge, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which in Aramaic is in our English version, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the most significant things that Jesus has ever said. Not merely because it points back to the Old Testament prophecy of Psalm 22, which opens with those exact words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm, written hundreds of years earlier by David, King David, soon to be King David, when he was being uh, chased and when he was being encircled, this is a very prophetic psalm. In fact, I mentioned it last week. This is the exact same song, psalm that says, The evil ones surround me and pierce my hands and feet. They cast lots for my garments. This is the same psalm that Jesus now quotes, bringing everyone's attention, if they know, to the truth. But not everybody there knew the truth. In fact, people misunderstood Jesus. Jesus gets misunderstood an awful lot. We see that Jesus gets misunderstood. Anytime you've invited someone to church, anytime you've invited somebody to have a conversation about God's stuff or to meet Jesus, you've run into misunderstanding. The world misunderstands Jesus continually. And the world misunderstood Jesus here. 
Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the guys think, he's calling Elijah. You can see why they would think that. It sounds like it. Eli, Eli, Elijah. This actually is from a Jewish tradition handed down that came from the Old Testament book of Malachi, the very last book of the Bible in chapter 4. Since Elijah never died but was carried to heaven by God, there was an idea that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And of course, we know that John the Baptist fulfilled the Elijah role. He dressed like Elijah. He acted like Elijah. And Jesus declared that he's the one who goes before the coming of the Lord. That was true. But they misunderstood. They thought, he's calling to Elijah because he can't handle the pain and he's asking Elijah to save him. And so they give him a drink and they say, now let's wait and see if Elijah comes and saves him. Their mockery and scorn continues, but it will not continue long. For we will see that Jesus gives up his breath. The meaning of this can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God the Father made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why would Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other than pointing back to the prophetic psalm? Because this was the very first and only time in all of existence that Jesus understood what it was like to be forsaken by God the Father. God, who is three in one, the Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, have existed in perfect communion from eternity past. But for the very first time, the Son now experiences true separation from the Father. Oh, he was never even separated when the King of Heaven stepped off his throne and entered humanity, donning human flesh on our behalf. No, no. The Father was still with him. The Father still said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father was still with him. He was in the Father's house. He was in the Father's will. And the Spirit was guiding the Lord. This is the first time Jesus truly was forsaken. And the reason that the Father forsook the Son is right here. He became sin for us. The weight and magnitude of God's displeasure with sin cannot be overestimated. Jesus, who takes the cross on our behalf, becomes sin for us. He does not merely bear our sin. He does not merely represent our sin. He becomes sin for us. And the Father, who is holy, cannot tolerate sin. He cannot be around sin. And so, He has to turn His back on His Son. The darkness was bad enough. But now, the full forsaking comes through because the Father turns His back on Jesus. He's not going to rescue Jesus. This is in fact the will of the Father. That Jesus be our sacrifice of atonement. Jesus knows this and He goes headlong into it, but it doesn't make it any easier to be forsaken by God because He became sin for us. It's not just that God is mad at Jesus. The Father is not mad at Jesus at all. The Father loves the Son and yet the Father will pour His wrath out on sin. And when Jesus becomes sin for us, as the Bible declares, the full cup of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus. That's why He cries out. And that's why He cries out one final time and gives up His Spirit, as recorded in Matthew 27.50. He gives up His Spirit. 
understand that Jesus' spirit was not taken from him. He gave it up. Jesus declares in John 10, 16 and 17, that I am loved by the Father because I lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. None of these guys killed Jesus without his willingness to go through with the actions that would render our salvation paid in full. He has the power to lay down his life and to take it up again. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, what did Jesus say when he cried out? Well, Luke explains what Jesus says and John tells us also. Luke 23, 46 includes the detail that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. He committed his spirit to the Father. You see, even though the Father had forsaken Jesus, who had become sin, the exact same word for forsake is used in the New Testament book of Acts by Luke, who declares that God the Father did not forsake Jesus to the grave. The forsaking was when he became sin for us, and when that sin was punished, and when it was finished and completed, his spirit went back to the Father. He commits it to him. But the Father says, rather than come back to heaven, you've got a job to do first. Having paid for our sins on the cross, Jesus declared this truth to those who had died before us. And John 19, verse 30 says, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it's finished. It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished exactly? Jesus' life? No, no. We know the story. We know that Easter's coming. We know that in three days, he comes back to life with a resurrection body, never to die again. No, what's finished is the payment for sin. What's finished is his mission to pay for our sinfulness. That's what is finished. You see, God will have payment for sin. And that payment will be full. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and therefore of infinite worth, is able to die for an unlimited number of people. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is also fully human, and that means he's able to be the sacrifice of atonement for humankind. And Jesus notes, it is finished. Payment rendered. That's what is finished. And because of that, the next cosmic sign emerges. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. God does something else with his hand. Earlier, with his hand, he had blotted out the sun for three hours. Now, he tears the temple veil in half from top to bottom. And in Jewish society, the temple curtain is a really, really big deal. It's a 60-foot tall curtain in the time of Jesus, and it separated the holy place from the holiest place, the holy of holies. Into the holy of holies, the high priest and the high priest only could enter, and just once a year. And the reason he entered this place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant, was so that he could make atonement for all the people's sin. He had to do this year after year. He had to take the blood of a bull and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, making atonement for sin every single year. It had to continue again and again and again, and now never again, because it's finished. There will never be a temporary sacrifice of atonement ever again. Jesus has paid it all. It is finished. Temporary sacrifice, finished. 
Payment for sin, finished. Limited access to God, finished. Jesus is declared in the New Testament to be our perfect high priest. One who is able to sympathize with us because he was tempted in all ways we were, yet was without sin. And so when God himself tears the curtain, it is emblematic of the fact that everyone who places faith in Jesus now has access to the throne room of God. All can enter because of the actions of the perfect high priest who finished all sacrifice on our behalf. But the people did not know. The people did not know. How would they know? After all, only the priests could even go in to see the temple curtain and only the high priest could see it from the inside. And yet in Acts chapter 6, it tells us that a number of priests came to believe the truth. I think they came to believe the truth because when they found out that their temple was torn, their curtain was ripped, their veil was shredded, and then they saw the risen Lord Jesus, they figured it out and they placed their faith in the one and only true sacrifice of atonement. Can you see that God the Father's will is the sacrificial death of God the Son? But we weren't there to praise. In fact, neither were many of his disciples. And so, someone else had to take our place. If we are not there to cry out God's praise, the rocks themselves will do the job for us. And the earth shook. And the rocks rumbled. They split. And they declared God's immense power at the end of sacrifice. May it never be in our lives that nature has to fulfill our purpose to praise God Almighty. May we see the signs and may we praise Him. But if we don't, the rocks themselves will cry out. And here they split. But it wasn't just that. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, the NIV translates this very clunkily. In the Greek, it's much more likely, uh, much more uh, a better translation, a much smoother translation, to note that the tombs broke open on Friday, but it was after the resurrection that these bodies of many holy people who had died came to life. It's the overflow of the resurrection that splashes onto these guys that gives them temporary reprieve from death. Now, all of them had to, weirdly enough, suffer death again, for resurrection means coming back from the dead never to die again, and that has only happened for Jesus. All of these holy people who went in and were an undeniable sign to the holy city of Jerusalem let everyone know that something major had happened, that history had turned a corner. Jesus had died. And because of it, the cosmic signs were revealed. Well, someone saw the signs, but it wasn't the disciples. It wasn't Pilate, but it was a Roman. The Roman centurion, says verse 54, and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened and they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. How is it that a Roman centurion who oversaw his death came to the truth, but his disciples ran away scared? How is it that a Roman centurion unfamiliar with the Old Testament came to faith in this moment when the Jewish people could not see the truth. Well, 
This Roman centurion was well acquainted with cosmic signs, with his religion at least, and he knew that something crazy was going on. Darkness, earthquake, rocks splitting open. Yeah, something happened, and it's because this guy died, and he figured it out, and he got everything right except the tents. Surely this man is the Son of God. He didn't know about the resurrection yet. His faith would not be fully realized for a few more days. But the cosmic signs are there. I hope that we can see, and I hope that we can share. Well, John tells us that this all happened on the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And because the Jewish leaders didn't want bodies hanging on crosses during the most holy day of the year, they had to ask Pilate, can you go break the legs of the guys so that they die? Because after all, if you're hanging on a cross and you're only able to catch a breath by lifting up, if somebody comes along with a, a mallet and breaks your legs, you cannot stand up to catch breath anymore and you die pretty quickly. And so this was the plan. And this is exactly what happened. The centurions come out under Pilate's command and they break the guy's legs to Jesus' left and they break the guy's legs to Jesus' right and then they come to Jesus and they're thinking, should we break his legs? But John declares in verse 34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, bringing forth a sudden flow of blood and water. They'd seen that he was already dead. But just to make sure, Jesus was stabbed in the side through the ribs, right through the heart, and he sees sudden flow of blood and water come out. Now, since his heart was no longer pumping, since he was dead, the aspect of water-like fluid within the blood separates, and it cannot mix. There's nothing to pump it together to continually mix it. And so it's like oil and water, and these things flow out separately. Both blood and water are very, very important purification understandings to the Old Testament Jew. They know exactly what blood is used for, and they know exactly what water is used for. Obsessed though they were with mikvahs and ritual cleansing and washing their hands before eating. They knew exactly the importance of blood and water, which is why John makes sure to record it, and he even interprets that for us. And then John declares that these things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken is the fulfillment of Psalm 34, verse 20, which says, none of his bones will be broken. He quotes it right there. And another scripture that says they will look on the one they have pierced is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which says just that. John knows that this is the fulfillment of scripture. Can you see? Can you see that the will of God the Father is the sacrificial death of God the Son? Can you see that the love and death of Christ compels faith? These are the questions that we must ask. But we can't answer these questions all on our own. The people who were there didn't understand the significance. Even the centurion who cried out, surely he was the son of God, didn't understand exactly what that meant. Didn't understand fully. But we can understand fully. For we know that because of the cross, the Holy Spirit is able to come and do his job. And when the Holy Spirit comes, having Jesus finishing his, having finished his job, the Holy Spirit comes, and one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is inspire the New Testament writers. And there are a couple of very important New Testament texts that interpret for us the spiritual significance of the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The motivation is love. 
The motivation is love. For God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves us. Christ loves us. The Spirit loves us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have the motivation of love. And this is how it was demonstrated. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice it doesn't say after we cleaned ourselves up and stopped sinning and got right, then Christ... No. You don't have to do anything for God to die for you, for God to love you so much that he will die for you. We'll leave that nonsense to every other religion that says you have to be good to get to God. Nope. Christianity says God will come to you in your state no matter how dilapidated it is. But he won't let you stay there because the cross is the turning point. The cross changes everything. It's a demonstration of his perfect love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have redemption through his blood. It's through his blood. It's not through the waving of a magic wand. It's not through a particular other mechanism. It's through his blood. The only way that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, is through his blood. And so if anyone were ever to tell you, oh, God didn't have to die on the cross for us to be saved, they're absolutely wrong. The one and only time that I interrupted a sermon was in Sheldon, Missouri. It was on Easter morning, and we had a guest ecumenical preacher come in who said Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. God could have saved us in any way he wanted. And I kept waiting for the punchline because I thought, surely this has to be a joke. But it never came. And so I stood up, cut him off, interrupted him, and said, oh, I, look at the time. I think it's time for you to go on to your next church, because he was a traveling preacher going to a number of churches that day. And then I got up there and explained how Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. It's through blood. The Old Testament makes it very, very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice. Hebrews quotes that in the New Testament. The Old Testament makes it very, very clear that the blood was given for the atonement. That is how we make atonement, the shedding of blood. It is through the blood that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's it. But how does it work? Well, how do we get this forgiveness? God the Father presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. If you want to get the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and that sacrifice of atonement, it has to be through faith. You can only get it through faith. That's how you access God's grace. His grace was good enough for him to die for you. It's our faith that gets us into full access. It's faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without the shedding of blood, it is impossible for atonement to be made. These things are impossible. It is impossible for God to violate his own nature. And even though people like to say, well, God can do anything, God can do the impossible. Remember in the garden when Jesus prayed for the second time, Father, if it's possible, would you take this cup from me? But if it's not, I drink it willingly. There are certain things that are impossible for God. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to violate his own nature. It's impossible for God to save us without the shedding of blood. Because that is his nature. Well, we understand that when that blood was shed, it's because Jesus had become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. God the Father made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a great cosmic swap that takes place. 
Through the shedding of blood, the sacrifice of atonement results in a swap. We are sinful. Our sinfulness is great, but Jesus, who's God in the flesh, is perfectly righteous. And by becoming sin for us, taking our punishment, His righteousness goes to us and our sinfulness becomes His. So He becomes sin for us so that if we place our faith in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So now I stand before God the Father covered by the righteousness of God the Son. And it's because I have placed faith in what He has done. And now I have a sacrifice of atonement. And that's the only way you can do it. It's a great trade that takes place. Sinfulness for righteousness. I exchanged my sinfulness for His righteousness. And He exchanged His righteousness for my sinfulness. Sin will be paid for. Because of the cross, you can allow Jesus to pay for your sin. Otherwise, you will pay for it with all your blood. Now the reason this cosmic swap can work is because of the idea of ransom. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there's one God and mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Ransom is what you pay to get someone back. And we were under sin's curse. And so, God paid God to get us back. Never for a minute think that God paid the devil. The devil doesn't have that kind of power. No, 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 no. God is holy. Because God is holy and perfect, he can't be around sin. But because God is holy and perfect, he wants to be around us. And the only way to make that happen was for God the Father to send God the Son to earth to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin, to be raised by God the Spirit so that we can be with God Almighty. And so, the ransom is God's love paying God's holiness. God's holiness had to be satisfied, and it could only be satisfied through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the significance of the cross. I, th I think we can all get that. I think we can all share that, too, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers, even Chris from work. We can share the truth. We can. But you might think, I... I don't know. That was kind of a lot. How do I do it? This is how you do it when you invite someone to Easter this week. You start very quickly by asking the questions. Can you see that the will of God the Father is the sacrificial death of God the Son? Can you see that Christ's love and death compels heartfelt faith? And then you explain it this way. You start with the motivation. God's love. God's love for us. And here it is. Christ died for us. It's a simple opening move. Love. Love is the reason this all went down. God loves us. So you start by saying, the motivation for the cross is love. God loves us, and here's how he proves it. Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. And then you talk about the benefit. Through his blood, because death on the cross is a bloody affair, we, and you can share any of that that you want. The blood leads to three significant benefits. It leads to redemption, forgiveness of sins, that's Ephesians 1.7, and an atoning sacrifice, that's Romans 3.25. And so, it's through the blood that we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, and an atoning sacrifice. And the way that this sacrifice is received is by faith, which is heartfelt belief. 
The sacrifice doesn't just cover you willy-nilly. It only covers you if you place your faith in it. It is to be received by faith. And faith is heartfelt belief. Heartfelt belief is not just head belief. Head belief is you think it's true. Heartfelt belief is when you can declare this with the disposition of your life. Jesus died for me. The least I can do is live for him. And if you can say that and you can mean that, you have faith. And you have heartfelt belief. And that means you have redemption, forgiveness of sins, and an atoning sacrifice because God loves you so much. Well, after you talk about how you get this heartfelt faith, you talk about the cosmic swap. What happens is that our sinfulness traded places with His righteousness. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God by placing faith in this atoning sacrifice. And that means His perfect sacrifice, His perfect righteousness, since He's God in the flesh, covers me. And how does that swap work? Well, that swap works because the ransom was paid. God's love paid God's holiness. This is the gospel message. This is the spiritual significance of the cross. This is what can change people's lives. This is what changed your life. This is what changed my life. This is what changed the entire scope of human history. This is how the corner was turned so that the sun could be raised from the dead and the church can get kick-started. And we now fan into flame the gift of God in our lives. I think you can explain it to folks. I think you can share it with people. And when you leave, I want you to go get the invitation cards and I want you to invite people to come back to Easter next Sunday to hear this truth and the power of the resurrection. Because that's when all the sacrifice gets vindicated. Would you stand with me as we sing our final song?